Welcome to the Pink Ilnu Podcast, an Indigenous platform for intersectional stories. That means my name is Amy and I'm Mi'kmaq. I am the host and creator of this show. This is the second of a two-part episode featuring guest Gerald Gabriel. In the first half, we had a great discussion about Octagamguk's history the Federation of Newfoundland Indians, and the Golubu First Nation Band. If you haven't had a chance to listen to the first part yet, I highly recommend it. And you almost had to, like the 80s, 90s, like there was a huge wave of Newfoundlanders who went to other provinces throughout the country because there just weren't any jobs in Newfoundland. And if you, like you, you know, served your country as as you told me before and then got punished for it essentially pretty much i i went overseas twice i served overseas twice uh i served up in the north pole at canadian forces station alert which is literally at the north pole i served all over alberta i served uh i served in ottawa and uh i was with the counter terrorist group as a medic for those guys for while they were when they were forming up in uh in the late or early 90s i should say I was uh, I was asked to go to war twice. Both times the mission got canceled, but I went and practiced and we got ready. We were going to go. Two days before the mission went, they canceled the mission. Uh, but I was ready to go serve my country and fight. My wife, I did 20 years. I got injured. My wife did 30 years. So between us, we did 50 years. And, and my wife served over in the front lines in Afghanistan in 2006, which is one of the bloodiest years over there. And I had to sit here with three small children under the age of 10 preparing the speech, what I was going to say if mom isn't coming home. I had to get ready to like, what if mom doesn't come home? What if, what if this, what if the worst happens? And, and then, you know, one of the, the, the things that got me was that not so much for myself, I'm an older man now, but my kids got their status and they were members of Halibut. And I had told them so many stories and how we fought for this for so long. They were ecstatic, you know, and it, it was sort of something I could give them for pulling them all over this country. We got moved every three years. We moved so many times. The kids had to get used to new schools and stuff like that, but that was part of the duty. And then to come back and tell the kids, guess what? They just revoked our status. They just took it away from us again. And they're being punished because I went to serve my country. It's bad enough they're punishing me. At least I can take it. But my kids were so happy when they so proud that, you know, we're now, we're now Mi'kmaq. We have to, we actually have uh, a history and ancestry that we can look back on and say we have it. That's, now, they have never taken that away from me. But at the same time, you know what I mean? It's just something, the way this country is set up, if you haven't got the card, you're not status, you're not native in this country. You know what I mean? That's just, that's just the way it is, and that's unfortunate. Uh, but that's the way the government runs. And it's ridiculous because they're shooting themselves in the foot. What do governments use for commerce? Vote. So the more votes you can bring to the table, the more power, the more voice you have with the government, the more they're willing to listen to you. If you could look at during an election, for instance, the one that's coming up and say, I can give you 100,000 votes because we're so grateful because you gave us a proper treaty, just like Con River got, and you gave the Halibu status and you allowed those, those 108,000 people 
to become a band, a full band, and, and you reinvoked, sorry, uh, reinstated their status and gave them band membership, never to be taken away from them again. He'd have a hundred thousand plus votes right there. So you by by cutting the numbers down to twenty five thousand, you have just shot yourself in the foot, Chief, because you just lost seventy five thousand points, shall we say, towards your voting towards your voice with the government. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I gotta try and turn it around on him in that way, I suppose. Um I read recently, and I know you have been uh, paying attention to what's been going on, um, that as of, I believe it was July 5th of this year, Canadian Forces members can now appeal their removal from the founders list and have a chance to get their status back. Um, so how true is this? And what does it mean? And what does that mean for you? Do you have a chance to get your status back? I did read that. And it is, in fact, true um, that the uh, the government has finally, uh, I think the Minister of Indigenous Affairs, or whatever he calls himself nowadays, um, uh, I do believe that they finally reached an agreement where the uh, RCMP people who served before 2011 um, can and the veterans can uh, uh, get an honorary reinstatement, shall you call that, an honorary reinstatement depending on a reassessment by this band council under re- their enrollment committee. So they can still turn around and say no uh, based on... <laughs> Again, I love the one self-identification. I just, I just love that one. You have like hidden cameras in my house. You making sure everybody's smudging, and <laughs> I'm still waiting to find out how. Oh, what, what proof do you have that I'm self-identifying exactly? Uh, I don't know. I don't know how that is even on the table because it's ridiculous. You can't prove it. You can't disprove it if they say, "Oh yeah, oh yeah, I'm, I'm a total, I'm totally self-identifying." What's the name of our chief? We have a chief. <laughs> What's the name of our band? We have a band? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Those status people, you know, those guys who are participating. Uh, so I don't know how that's going to work. I don't know if that means everybody. I don't see how they could possibly turn around and deny anybody who was a veteran before 2011. Um, then they also wanted to look at the uh, FNI people. And the people who were like on the founding members list back in the days of the FNI, and they also wanted to look at active service members and active RCMP members as well. But they put that on hold mostly because of uh, the fact that this isn't the legal, this isn't the courts right now. So they said because of that, they're putting the rest of those talks on hold. But they are willing to reconsider uh, people who served before 2011. Um, I don't know how this chief and council is going to do that because, again, when I uh, saw them making the decision that they were going to uh, come up with a supplemental agreement and there was going to be a point system, and I saw what the point system were, I was flabbergasted. So I, 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 can't, I could not see myself with, with proven genealogical research, uh, proving my ancestry, losing out on my status, but I did because of the point system that they came up with was so ludicrous. So again, if there's any way they can screw this up, I, I could still get up getting screwed. Yeah, I wouldn't doubt it. I, I don't know how they could possibly do it, but if there's any way that they can bunch boggle this up, I'm sure they will. I hate to be so, uh, I hate to be so down about it, but I got to say, uh, they botched the job so far so badly that I, I just have no more faith in this chief and council. And that's totally understandable. I mean, I, this is just one group of people that they're trying to, I guess, 
find a um, sort of solution to only one small subgroup of rejected Gullaboo people. Absolutely. Um, what do you see as a true resolution to this issue? That's a great question. Uh, you know what? This is exactly what I called it, is what you just said. I call getting the veterans and the RCMP uh, one step in the right direction. That's all that is, one step in a long journey. Because if they think that someone like me, who's going to get my uh, status back, we'll say, because I served as a veteran, I get my I get my status back, that I'm going to stop talking about this and getting the rest of the people in that, that deserve it, uh, they're sadly mistaken. This is not, you don't throw a banyan on this, and then I just turn around and say, oh, thank you, well, I got my status, well, the heck with the rest of them. Uh, there are people out there like that, but not me, sorry. This doesn't end here. Um, I will fight for every Indigenous person, self-identification person out there. Now, should it ever come down to that they do a proper genealogical research becomes the the norm or the criteria that's needed for the government to accept any more than that, then I would say, yeah. But if they can't provide proper genealogical certified research, then they don't deserve to be in the band. And that's because scientifically it was proven that, you know, that you just don't, you don't have any proof that you were part of uh, the Mi'kmaq community prior to 1949. Now, if that happens, um, I don't know what to do there, especially if it's somebody who in fact um, is adamant that they have native bloodlines, but they don't have any proof because there was no paper. Cause you got to remember the natives had oral tradition. We didn't have paper trails, right? So, but this is only going back to 1949, though. So, the the original criteria was. So, if we go back to that, you should be able to prove that you were part of a Mi'kmaq family prior to 1949. I don't expect you to be able to go all the way back to the 1600s like my family did, but but you, you should be able to go back before 1949. You should be able to a paper trail. My, I even had one of my uh, one of my ancestors where it says his wife was an RC and, and he's his religion said savage. <laughs> wow, I mean, yeah, I'm not but, surprised, but yeah, that's what, that's what the priest wrote: RC for her and savage for him. <laughs> wow, I'm bloody proud of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, cheers, cheers. I, I got my tea too. I'm a proud savage too. <laughs> You haven't seen Savage yet. You wait till uh, you wait till uh, when this when this continues on. With if we find more bodies in those the residential schools, this is going to get quite ugly with the church. I hope it doesn't. Uh, I don't want any ridiculousness, uh, civil wars, and all that kind of stuff, and, and people killing each other and stuff like that. When it comes to Canadian citizens and stuff like that, but would I be? disinclined to say kick the church out of Canada? Nah. Bye-bye. You've been a virus and a parasite long enough. Um, you know, I'm sorry, but they did absolutely no good for the Native people whatsoever. I don't care what anybody says. You may have thought they did, but that's because they hit it well. You know, those little kids that ended up in the ground and stuff like that who died of TB, uh, that was negligence. Um, those kids that, uh, those, those survivors that came out, I talked about beatings and sexual abuse and children, uh, babies being born to, uh, to students and priests and, and whatever. Um, that's, uh, I'm sorry, that's unforgivable. You know, uh, take your poison back to Europe where it came from. We don't want it here. 
As a matter of fact, the United States didn't want it either. The United States, when they when they first came to here, everybody says, oh, United States and our forefathers wanted a, a Christian uh, country. And no, it didn't. The, the four founding fathers in particular all said they wanted the complete separation of church and state. They wanted nothing, the church to have nothing to do with power. But unfortunately, you got these people out there that say, oh, yeah, they wanted this to be a Christian country. No, they didn't. They wanted to get away from all that crap that was happening in Europe. Unfortunately, it came here with them. I remember one guy, one Christian brother, Brother Spurl, Wayne Webb is the guy that I went to school with, and he's also a member of the, the Halibut Band. And Wayne will probably uh, remember this, but I got into an argument with Brother Spurl one time. He was making fun of the Native beliefs in front of me. And, uh, and, I, and he said to me at one point, I said something back to him, and he said, where would the Natives be? He said, where would the Natives be? If we hadn't brought, if we hadn't come to this country, the Christians, he says, you guys wouldn't have heard of Jesus. I said, we also wouldn't have heard of Satan. <laughs> you brought him too, pal. <laughs> you might have brought Jesus, but you also brought Satan because we never heard of either one of those guys before. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and our spirituality was and still is so loving and caring. And, and there are no, you know, you don't get damned to hell. You don't, you know, um, you learn your lesson for the most part. And it, everything in life is a lesson. Um, there's a spirit world, but there is no hell. How do you how do you explain that when they got here and they came at the wrong time of the year, just before the winter set in, how did they survive? The natives took pity on them. The natives went over and said, hey, you guys look like you're in a world of hurt. And you know what? Our belief system is that everything comes from Mother Earth. So we are all connected. That's why they said the wolf is my brother, the bear is my brother, the moose is my brother. If they killed one of those things to eat, they, they said a prayer over it and said, thank you for giving up your life to sustain my family. Uh, if they cut a tree down to make a shelter, they said the same thing. You gave up because everything comes from Mother Earth and we are all part of Mother Earth. Well, science has proven that's correct. If you look at all the minerals and, and carbons and things like that that are zinc and, and, and uh, copper, all those things that are elements of the earth, and you look in the human body, you find exactly the same thing. As a matter of fact, if you forget color for a second, and you look at red men, white men, black men, Asian men, and you look at the components in your body, and we're all made up of the same thing. And if you look at fish, and you look at wolves, and you look at bears, and you take a look at their blood and cells, we are all made up of the same thing that come from Mother Earth. Their religion sounds to me like it was pretty spot on, now wasn't it? <laughs> so the reason they the, the reason they survived here is because we helped them. But then what happened is to get here in big enough numbers, they have firepower that we don't have, cannons, they have a willingness to, to use them indiscriminately, and all of a sudden their their way of life is not so much uh, uh, a culture mingling, it becomes a culture clash. We have to make you more like us. And then you get to residential schools. What is that all about? We have to make their children more like us. That's the only way we're going to find them acceptable in this community, in, in this, in this uh, civilization, is we have to get them away from their parents and we have to make them more like us. We have to beat the red out of them, black and blue, until they're white inside. And then when they get all that out of them, and how are we going to do that? They're not going to give up their children. Send the cops. Cops come up. They got guns. They take the children, which is kidnapping in any other, in any other world. And they take them away and they say, 
you can't speak your language. You can't do your rituals. You can't smudge. You can't, you can't say anything. You can only say the Lord's Prayer, and you bloody well better do it in English, or we'll beat you bloody. Plus, now you're giving these young girls, in particular, well, it doesn't necessarily have to be girls. We are talking Roman Catholic here. But if you're, just, you're talking with these young, young teenagers, pubescent boys and girls, who are now at complete control of these adults. And what ends up happening? Sexual abuse, you know, uh, verbal abuse, emotional abuse, physical abuse. That's what happens when you give somebody complete control over another human beings. And, and unfortunately, look at the, the data of people and you say, well, just imagine for a second. I said this is in a, in a thing that I wanted to an email I sent off to Justin Trudeau. I doubt he got it, but I sent it off to him anyway. And it said, you know, if your kids suddenly didn't come home from school, they were just gone. You spent years looking for them. You couldn't find them. You found out they were taken to Nova Scotia to an all-English school and taught to be, I don't know, I'll just pick a religion, uh, Buddhists, right? Against your will, against their will, they were brought down there and they were just taught, they, they were beaten and whatever until they, they learned nothing about how to be a Buddhist. Why did I pick Buddhism? They're the most peaceful people. Anyway, we'll just go with that. <laughs> and, and, but you found that it was happening. Well, guess what? Now, when you found all that out and you brought them back, what does the government turn around and offer you? $40,000 per child as a settlement. Then you give the survivors give their account of what happened to them in the thing. And the church has said, hand over those accounts to the church. And the church says, lawyers say, no, we don't have to, because these people told us their stories. They got a cash settlement, and there was an agreement made. And therefore, we have to keep these things confidential for the sake of the victims. And you're sitting there saying, <coughs> wait a minute. <laughs> You're going to tell me you're not going to tell us what happened. You're not going to agree to show us what happened. You're not going to give us a documentation. And you're trying to sell us on the fact that this is for the victim's own good to protect their confidentiality. Gee, I think when they've been raped, beaten, uh, done experiments on with malnutrition, uh, exposed to TB intentionally, uh, and had to bury people from their own people in the in unmarked graves, throw bodies in the graves and bury them and stuff like that, is what the, the accounts say. I don't think they're going to mind too much that their confidentiality is broken, pal. This is not protecting them. Let's, let's call it what it is. This is self-protection, Mr. Mr. Churchman. <laughs> and unfortunately, that is, yeah, what a lot of them have done. They've... Uh they don't want to admit that they are doing anything wrong. And um, it it is such an absolute sin. It's such a shame that they're the victims are never going to get the, the reconciliation, the recompense that they deserve. Well, there's a, there's a, a difference that, that a lot of tribal people don't understand. I, I say tribal because every African I've talked to as well is in the same boat that, uh, that, that I, when I met in um, Tanzania and stuff, um, they say the same thing about their governments and stuff. You know, there's legal and there's justice. They don't always meet in the middle. Um, you know, and, and lawyers pull this crap all the time. They pull off something because of legality and get somebody off, like O.J. Simpson. He got off with the murder charge. Uh, because the lawyer was smart enough to say, stop taking your uh, anti-inflammatories and your 
your, your knuckles will swell from your arthritis. And then when you go to cut on the glove, it won't fit. And I'll look like, that couldn't possibly be his glove because it doesn't fit. So, and they got him off. They got him off with murder. They proved that afterwards in the civil court that he actually did do the murders, but they got him off because they did a trick. And that was the lawyer's job. He knew that he was guilty. He said afterwards, Mr. Kardashian said, I know he was guilty, but my job was to get him off. That's legal. That's how the legal system works. So legal isn't always just, right? Abraham Lincoln, for example, uh, you know, he emancipation of the uh, the, uh, the, uh, the black people down in the, down in the states is a joke. He had a, set up a town called Morrisburg over in Africa, and the idea was that once these people finished fighting for him, he was going to ship them all back to Africa. He didn't want them in the United States either. He was just as racist as, as the rest of them. Right after he signed that piece of paper that emancipated the blacks, the next piece of paper he signed was the first mass hanging in United States history. And you know what it was? 30 natives who had been on a hunting party on a reserve. They were starving because they weren't allowed to, uh, they weren't supposed to come off the reserve. Uh, a, cat, a, a cow had, had gone over onto reserve land. These starving guys saw it, killed the cow, took it back to the, the members. There were 300 people in the band. They took it back and tried to feed 300 people as best they can with this one cow. The rancher said, that's cattle rustling, and that's a hanging offense. So I want all 300 people who ate my thing hung. And he sent it up as far as the president. And the president said, I can't hang 300 people. That'll cause uprisings for sure. Just hang 30, the 30 hunters. So they hung 30 people for bringing back one cow. And you know what? The hunters were first approached by the, by the sheriff or whatever was in charge, lawmaker, down there, went to them and told them, you took this guy's cow, and we know it, um, and they said, we'll make amends. We'll each bring him a deer. He said, it's not about that. It's about the law. They broke the law. I want their cattle rustled. I want them to uh, all hang. So Abraham Lincoln hung 30 natives, just like that. The English uh, did the same thing. The Wabanaki Confederacy was a group of, uh, I think it was the Assiniboine, perhaps the Nascopi, the the Mi'kmaq. There was two or three groups, two or three native tribes into a confederacy. And... um, they were invited to peace talks after the French had left and we were fighting guerrilla warfare. The English, uh, Lord Cornwallis tried smallpox. That didn't work. Uh, his, his own group, he had three forts and all of them were afraid to come out of the forts because they'd get picked off by these sharpshooters. So they didn't know, they didn't know what to do anymore. So they, uh, they called for peace talks. Eight people were sent in to have peace talks with the English. They grabbed them and hung them. There's how... The legal system works. And it was all nice and legal. The same thing was selling off the land of the native people. They walked over. They had a scribe. They said, we'll give you this for this. The native person probably didn't even speak English. Said, do what? And they said, here, make a make a thumbprint or, or make an X here. So he did that sort of thing like that. And, and the scribe witnessed it. And the guys, the governor witnessed it. It's all well and good. He doesn't matter. He didn't understand a word you were saying. As long as he did this, according to the law, we are now legally owning this land. And that was done time and time again. And it's legal. It's not ethical. It's not moral. It's not justice. But it's legal. And the other thing that's really interesting is that prior to uh, the supplemental agreement, uh, there was a vote taken to accept and the criteria and all that kind of stuff that was that was given out by the 
that was agreed upon by the band and by the uh, by the government as to what would be the criteria. Then when 101,000 whatever came in um, and they changed it, uh, contrary to the uh, what occurred with respect to the 2008 agreement, in the 2013 agreement, the supplemental agreement, there was no ratifying vote by the FNI membership because the they called it the agreement, they said uh, in 2013, the supplement was done by what they called inter alia. What that means is that uh, there was an unreasonably high number of applications. So it was neither reasonable nor credible to expect more than 101,000 individuals would become members of any First Nation, particularly given that approximately two-thirds of the applicants did not reside in any of the uh, Mi'kmaq communities targeted for recognition in the initiative, but elsewhere in Canada. So right there, they're saying that a lot of the people who came in and asked for uh, membership are people who no longer or did not reside in a Mi'kmaq community at the time. So right off the bat, they, they, they said right off the bat that we were going to make sure that the people who stayed in the communities are the ones who are going to get accepted. Right. So essentially being punished for not being within your community and, and not having those connections. Yeah. And they, did, they, and they, they, wanted, to, they wanted to make sure that the new rules um, were sort of skewed against people who moved away. That was their, they gave them four points, which I think was the most uh, for any point that uh, was, was if you lived and lived in, and served in the area or, or uh, stayed in the area uh, with significant contact. Therefore, they would give you four points for that. But if you lost four points automatically because you moved away, then you could not be a member because you needed to get 13 out of 15. So you couldn't possibly get 13 with four gone. So they almost guaranteed that if you moved away, you lost your status. Yeah, that's always so crazy to me. On top of everything else that we've been through, the, you know, oppression and the intergenerational trauma and, you know, um, Okdagamgook, Newfoundland didn't have residential schools, but we were still suppressed and, and treated like second class citizens or, I mean, third class citizens, if that's a term. Um, it's... I mean, I'm, I'm shocked and I'm hurt by it, but I'm not surprised, you know? Well, yeah. And, you know, when they turned around in 2013 and said, all of a sudden they're saying you could no longer appeal, uh, your, your, uh, rejection. Um, you, uh, you had to have, uh, there were th- what to call thresholds, uh, on, on how you could demonstrate or resolve your connection to the Mi'kmaq community. Like I had constant connection and communication with my family members back home and i sometimes visited well apparently there wasn't enough texts emails phone calls uh infrequent visits wasn't enough um connection with one's own family members well my mother was the chief how could they say i didn't have connections to the Mi'kmaq community geographical residents in or around the Mi'kmaq group of indians of newfoundland uh if you were non-residency your frequency of visits and communications with the Mi'kmaq group of indians of newfoundland how do you prove your communications I told them I made phone calls and texts and emails and all that kind of stuff, letters before all that, and they they still ignored it. I said, nope, not enough. And who got to make that choice? Not enough. Um, then the last one that, that cracked me up the mic, uh, sorry, uh, was that you had to have a, a current, a substantial connection to and maintenance of your Mi'kmaq culture and way of life. How the heck do you possibly 
resolve that? How do you, how do you prove that to anybody? How, how do you say whether or not you are trying to learn the language, whether or not you are, uh, anybody can say that. Yeah, I, I hunt, I fish. I, I try to learn uh, my language. Uh, I got an online course that I'm taking, which could be a lie. Um, none of these things are, are what we call substantive, in my opinion, or in the opinion of some of the reporters that I saw looking at this same thing when they were trying to explain it on the news, saying, I can't believe they're not going with like proper genealogical research by certified professionals. I, I, I can't believe they're not using that. They're coming up with this pseudo-scientific way of doing it, saying, did you have enough contact with the community? Did you have enough contact with your own family members? Um, do you have a, a maintenance of the Mi'kmaq culture and way of life? How, how, do you, how, do you possibly, how do you possibly prove that? I don't get it. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I, I, I get what, what you're talking about. It's, it's so infuriating. And there's so much going on now too, like all these children being discovered in the schools and, and the years and years and years of discrimination. And, and for us, it's, you know, our parents and grandparents didn't go to residential school. Sure. But we have other things that we are dealing with, um, not that these things should be on a tier list or one is more important than the other, but we're struggling too, not being taken seriously. And, and just with everything coming together, there's so much hatred towards us and so much, you know, that we've had to deal with. Um, different people have different coping mechanisms and things like that. And I know for you, you had mentioned um, in a conversation with me before that, you are a singer songwriter, you write poetry. Um, and you were saying this helps you kind of cope with these things. Um, what, what, it, what exactly is your experience with that? Like, how is that for you? Uh, if you go to my Facebook page, which anybody is welcome to, I got it put under my public post, uh, Gerald Gabriel, it's on Facebook. Um, I have uh, I have some songs there that I put on a, a site called Song SoundCloud, so that I can now uh, put them up and post them on my Facebook page. Um, and they're all about the last few have been about exactly what's been going on in the news with regards to these residential schools and these poor children that they've been finding. Um, you'll find I'm not much of a singer in my own opinion. I'm much more of a I sound like Neil Young. Is that a compliment? I don't know, but <laughs> but. Uh, but I love his music, and I was heavily influenced by it. I, I first learned how to play uh, a song by Neil Young, and that was taught to me by Kenny Kenny uh, Campbell, uh, Mi'kmaq from uh, Cornerbrook, uh, was a good friend of our family. He used to come over and play all the time. He taught me my first three chords. Fantastic. He's still a, he's still a singer, songwriter down in uh, Newfoundland. Um, but Kenny, uh, Kenny got me a love for Neil Young. And uh, so my a lot of my songs when I when I realized that I sort of sounded like them I sort of ended up uh, not imitating because well I guess yeah imitating it would be more along the lines of uh, out of respect like a tribute I don't I don't want to necessarily do Neil Young songs uh, I want to do my own songs but if I happen to sound like Neil I'll take that um, but yeah he uh, if you go on my Facebook page you'll see that. Uh, it, it's it's on there, and the songs are pretty uh, intense. Uh, Little Red Kids is one about the, the bodies they found. Um, Bright Lights is about people living in cities as opposed to people living out in the country, uh, like the 
you know, it's hard for us, I would say, uh, Newfoundlanders and, and Indigenous people in particular to, to live in a city. I, I, I have a great deal of hard time with it. I like to be able to see the stars. So that one's called Bright Lights. Um, and uh, there's another one about Tell Me Why, which is, again, a, sort of an appeal to, like, why did you do this? Uh, how could you possibly do this? Somebody explained to me the unexplainable, how the inexplicable. How how, how could how could anybody do this to children? I, I don't get it. Um, so, but those are all on there. And yes, uh, after I left the military, my wife was still in, and uh, we went to Belgium. Uh, she got posted overseas for three years, and um, I uh, couldn't work over there except on the military base where they spoke English. So I got a job working. Uh, I took a course in. Uh, uh, counseling, and I was working with pe- uh, soldiers that had PTSD uh, from the wars and stuff. Uh, American soldiers, mostly some Canadian. And um, one of the tricks that I learned over there uh, was uh, mindfulness, as well as uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. And with that came a learning about uh, pets, for example, are great help to people with PTSD. But so is playing an instrument. And or writing things down, journaling, journaling. Um, in particular, writing poems, writing stories about what uh, what's on your mind, what you went through, and stuff, and how they affect you. And uh, I, it rang it rang with me, uh, having already had a love for uh, for music and a love for playing. I uh, and also for writing poetry. I decided that I was going to actually try to write my feelings out on these things that are happening and as they bother me. So yeah, I've been quite. There's been a lot in the news for me to use as a as a uh, therapy. <laughs> um, unfortunately, it's it's taken this to uh, to to get the uh, government's attention and the public opinion on our side. Um, one of the reasons why I, I refute people, when I see them burning the flag and stuff, was because of my military uh, background. Because you don't blame the military. Uh, necessarily for what's going on and you don't blame the country for what's going on you blame the government you blame the church because those are the people who are guilty the average canadian citizen did not know this was going on this was hidden from us by our government and by our and by our churches so um i say churches because it wasn't just the catholics the anglican were involved in united church as well um but yeah the um the anglicans are the only ones who really tried to make it right so far um but yeah, the it's a form of therapy that I highly recommend. Uh, if you haven't played an instrument before, pick one up. Uh, harmonica and guitar always go well together. That's what I'm working with. And uh, write down your feelings as opposed to bottling them up. Um, and sometimes you'll find, like, I, I get I get notes back saying this really helped me. Uh, it allowed me to really process and to cry and, and uh, to let it out when I heard your sad song about what was going on stuff like that it helped me uh, as well so you can sometimes get to help yourself and help others yeah that is such a good um a good point uh art therapy is so important for so many people especially when you're dealing with a lot of that trauma um and we and Ilnu and and many other indigenous nations we've been artists for thousands of years uh so clearly it works <laughs> oh the, the in the old days actually the the Ilnu were known as the porcupine people by some other tribes because we used to make such beautiful things out of porcupine quills we used to make beautiful baskets and stuff out of and earrings and stuff out of porcupine quills so a lot of the other tribes kind of referred to us as the porcupine people that is so funny i didn't know that <laughs> 
Yeah, I've seen some beautiful baskets made with quills. It's interesting. What uh, I love that we're we're starting to bring that culture and stuff back too, because it's so important to um, to keep the old ways going and to pass it on to the next generation. And as I say, the uh, the fact that Halibu, once we get it straightened out, we get the membership straightened out, and people who actually are deserving are actually still in or back in. Um, hopefully that'll be behind us in the next decade. Uh, but once that's done, uh, one of the things that I so look forward to is hopefully reaching out to other Mi'kmaq communities and uh, and getting their support to teach us and to, to bring us back on par uh, adding our voice to theirs because, like I say, it's all about votes to the government. So having more allies is not a bad thing. Um, there seems to be, uh, I could be wrong, but it seems to me there's almost an attitude of, um, well, we don't want them to take from us. If we get more natives, we'll, we might lose something. But you don't. You actually gain because you're gaining a bigger voice with the government. If all the natives in Canada put aside their own differences and came together under this uh, horrible um, happenstance that's happened with these residential schools and, and the more bodies that they're going to find. Uh, if all this comes out and it brings us together as one big indigenous community in Canada, as opposed to uh, and putting aside our petty differences, um, then that'll be the silver lining around this ugly dark cloud. Uh, because uh, I, I think together we're going to have uh, a heck of a strong voice, whereas opposed right now we're isolated and we're and we're separated, and a lot of that was done intentionally. That's part of the genocide that was worked on our people, and it has to stop. Uh, turning away seventy five thousand people uh, is utilitarian sort of thinking. It's not tribal thinking. It's again part of the genocide, and instead of fighting it, which what I as a chief would have done, uh, I, I would have fought back. Um, Instead of embracing it and saying, well, that's what they want. That's what we got to do. Um, you know, that's that's too big a price to pay. You can't throw 75000 to the curb uh, unless you really believe that the 75000 don't deserve it. Unless that's your mindset. Maybe he thinks that they're all just trying to get what they can. And uh, and they're, uh, they're just trying to jump on board the bandwagon to see if they can get something out of it. And they're not really interested in being Mi'kmaq. I don't think that way. I'm a glass half full kind of guy. I believe that these people were uh, were taken away from their from their culture and their and their ancestry. And in reconnecting with it, it gives us something that we haven't had in a long time. It's a hell of a sense of pride and a sense of belonging that we just haven't had, you know. Um, and that was taken from us. And I say, God damn it, let's take it back, you know. So. I, I hopefully that's what everybody who wants this, if they genuinely want to be in native people and they genuinely want to embrace this because they see that what they've been following so far, especially like the Catholic faith and all that kind of stuff. If you see what they've been following so far and they realize, you know what, I've made a mistake. I'm going back to the way it used to be. I'm going back to where we worship mother earth. And just for one second, just stop and imagine it. Just stop and imagine if everybody treated the waters and the grasses and the trees and the animals as something to be cherished and taken care of and nurtured for future generations. We wouldn't have plastic islands the size or twice the size of the state of Texas floating in the Pacific. And there's seven, apparently there's seven huge islands of plastic floating in, in, uh, in, in seawater right now. Giant, giant, giant 
things like that. And, and nobody's doing anything about it because there's no money in it. That mentality of just no money in it. It's just, how about we do it because it's the right thing to do? How about that? Well, that's going to take taxpayers' money. Well, if you listen to that crap, you'll have somebody tell you that we got to be a landless band. Why? There's no land in Newfoundland? The thing is bigger than most countries in Europe. There's no land in Canada for natives to have. Uh, to, we got to have landless bands in Canada? Dude, if you went to Germany, put this one in your hat and think about it. If you went to Germany and you had everybody step outside and put their arms out, there would be four inches between you and the next person for everybody. If you did it in Canada, there'd be four kilometers between you and the next person. That's how big Canada is. So don't tell me there's no land here, dude. There's land, and there's no reason why we have to be landless. There's no reason why we can't have hunting and fishing rights. Why not? You gave them the Nova Scotia. You gave them the Con River ban. Why, why would you turn around and tell us we can't have that? That just seems spiteful. Now, I understand Stephen Harper wasn't exactly happy with the natives. You read up the history between him and the natives. It wasn't, very, it wasn't a very good relationship. I understand that. But, uh, you know, at least he went so far as to give us a band membership. Um, what we've done with it since then has been a mess, but, but he gave us a band. It was a hell of a bad deal, but, I mean, it was better than no deal, I guess is what some people think. Um, you know, what if they had walked away? I don't know. What if they had walked away after the supplemental agreement? If we had to cut the numbers, what would they have done? I don't know. I just do know that most good leaders wouldn't just throw their people to one side. I mean, what kind of leadership is that? You know, we don't leave a man behind. We, we take care of our own. And nobody did that for us. People just, you know, people just said, nope, we're just, if they want us to change the rule, we'll change the rules. I, I completely agree. And, um, that's a great sentiment, what you were saying earlier about, you know, we're we're never going to stop fighting because that's who we are. Um, that is who we have our ancestors and their spirits within us and and their energy running through us. And they can tell us that we're non-Indigenous as much as they want, but we know who we are. And that is such a great sentiment. And we need to take care of Mother Earth and we need to take care of each other. I 100% agree with you. Oh, exactly. And, and, if, and if we don't take care of ourselves as natives, if we don't take care of our tribe, then we don't deserve to be in the tribe. Um, and to me, the people who are running the tribe threw 75,000 to the curb. And, they, and, and you call that leadership? You call that tribal leadership? Tecumseh would never have done that. Geronimo would never, Geronimo would fight to the death for his people. Ours, no offense, but it felt like he just rolled over and showed his throat to the other wolves. Yes, sir, you're the boss. Whatever you say goes. It's better than nothing. That's that's not our attitude. It's better than nothing. Now, they thought we were going to cave in when they gave us smallpox. We didn't cave. They thought they were going to cave in when all the French left us and we had to fight on our own. We had them so scared they wouldn't come out of their forts. You can look that up. Lord Cornwallis couldn't get his guys to come out of the fort. <laughs> he, he was at a loss. What oh the hell? <laughs> so he tried smallpox. He tried smallpox because of that. he was so desperate, as his words, to eradicate this irascible race. He was so he was so desperate that he tried smallpox. He tried anything, and he couldn't he couldn't wear us down. We wouldn't quit. So, where's that fighting spirit? Where's that Where's that saying that you know that we're not going to throw seventy five thousand out to the curb? 
you'd have to be one or two reasons that you would do that. One is you caved in, or two is you really don't believe those 75,000 deserve to be in. And who are you to make that call? Exactly. Without without proof, without better proof than, well, they, the people that are in right now said that they self-identify and they lived in the area. Oh, well, there you go then. <laughs> That's that's fine then, you know. White Owl, White Owl, the famous Canadian native, was completely English. He had no native blood in whatsoever. He was completely English. His name was Bernie something. White Owl, one of the famous Canadian poets. And he lived like a native because he loved a native lifestyle. And people thought one of the greatest natives that ever lived in Canada. He wasn't native. Uh, you could call yourself native as much as you want, but if you don't have the bloodlines, pal, you are not native. You're just somebody who likes the native lifestyle, and that's fine. I'm, that's admirable. But you're not native. If I if I went to Tanzania and dressed up in, as the Tanzanians did, or went to live with the uh, the, uh, the Maori tribe, they might adopt me. But for they'll always consider me a white man who loves their style and wants to live their sort of tribal mentality. But I ain't no Maori. <laughs> My parents are from Newfoundland. <laughs> and that's what that's what I don't understand here. That's what genealogical research proves. And that's what we're not using. And I can't fathom why. It, it really does amaze me. And a lot of it is they've been, you know, they have been colonized and, and capitalism, they, you know, money gets in the way, right? So, um, but I do, I, I, I love your... Um, you're just so such a force and and you're so determined to make this right. And that's what I love about you. And I, I appreciate you coming on here today and and talking about the history and explaining some of those truths, explaining the untold history of Ukdagamguk, because a lot of people don't know about it and a lot of people need to learn about it. And uh, so Walalin, as they say, I really appreciate you coming on today. Um, is there is there anything else, uh, any little quick tidbit that you'd like to add on before we go? Only the other fighters. If you look up Greg James, or if you ever want to have another discussion, Greg James would be a great person to talk to. Uh, Gregory Collins has taken over for uh, Gerald Brake, the, the gentleman who passed away, but he had a, he had a lawsuit going in. And Gregory Collins, a uh, guy I grew up with in Cornerbrook, actually, uh, he also served in the military with. He, uh, he also uh, is a strong fighter. He's taken over Mr. Brake's uh, lawsuit, and he's taken over the fight. He'd be another person. If you can get a hold of him, uh, just look up uh, uh, um, Halibu lawsuits, and you'll find his name somewhere under Gerard Brake or, or taking over for Gerard Brake. But he would be a great person to talk to, uh, Greg. Also, uh, uh, Helen Darrigan is another fantastic uh, source, and she has a, a fund going right now um, where she's collecting money to help pay for our, because uh, unlike the uh, the council who has taxpayers' money to help pay for their legal fees, we don't. We have to raise the funds ourselves. So if you can help, uh, like there are 75,000 of us uh, rejected people, if you can help and send in five bucks, remember, five bucks isn't a lot, but five bucks 75,000 times is a substantial number. Like, I don't ever expect some one guy to give me a million dollars, but if I could get a million people to give me one dollar, I still end up being a millionaire, don't I? Yeah. <laughs> well, it's the same thing. 75,000 of us that are fighting or more, if we all sent five bucks into Helen Derrickin's fund, 
uh, to help pay for this. Uh, her and Jack Buzain is another great guy. Uh, if you send it into her fund, that's paying our legal bills to fight this in court. Uh, and hopefully we'll be getting a court date soon. COVID put a real kibosh on that, but hopefully we'll be getting a, a court date soon. So, yeah, look up Helen Derrigan. You want to hear my songs, go to my Facebook page. They're free and they're off of SoundCloud. You can just listen to them. If you don't like them, don't tell me. I'll cry. If you do like them, I'll cry with joy. <laughs> That's a wonderful <laughs> attitude to have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, uh, th this was a wonderful, long, informative conversation. Um, well, Lalin, as we say in Mi'kmaq, thank you so much for joining me today, for Hello. sharing your story, and and for telling people about the history of our island and the history of our people. Um, I really appreciate it. Well, you... You gave me the opportunity, so you're just as much to be thanked. Uh, continue this. Find Helen, find Jack Buzin, find Greg James or Greg Collins, and you'll get a lot more information, too. Uh, I know uh, they're all elegant speakers, and I know they're all very knowledgeable about this. Yeah, Alrighty? absolutely. All right. Well, um, I guess that's where we'll wrap. Uh, and I, I'm sure I'll probably have you on again. Uh, we always have wonderful conversations and there's so many more stories to talk about. I'll bring my guitar. Yes. Yeah. Maybe <laughs> next time you can bring your guitar. That would be great. <laughs> All, right. <laughs> All right. Have a good one. Okay. Thanks. You too. Bye-bye. That wraps up the second part of our interview with guest Gerald Gabriel. Remember to subscribe on your favorite streaming platforms, follow us on Instagram, and share our episodes with your family and friends. Walalia, thank you to all of my listeners and Unmultis. See you soon.